Hello and welcome to episode 312 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Wow. We are back and in person. I kind of thought it had been longer, but I didn't realize that we recorded the podast the week of the live show in person. So we also recorded the live show in person. It kind of doesn't count, though. Okay. So, uh, because of the fact that we are back in person, exciting news. Yes. We can finally get to the beer that I was planning to drink on the pod two weeks ago when you tested positive for COVID. And that's thanks to third Pelton brother, Zach Jabal. Uh, we have with us the long sought after. I went, I went to the beer junction and asked for this, and they laughed at me, the idea that we could possibly get a Cloudburst beer that had been released that, that far back because they are so popular. But he saved for us one of his stash of the Kevin cold IPA, which is fitting because Zach Jabal just happened to write a story about the creation and the evolution of the cold <laughs> IPA for vinepair.com. Okay, it wasn't for the Pelton cast. No, no. He's, he wrote a story about something else for the Pelton cast. Like, we'll people people are writing food takes on cities specifically for the Pelton cast. I suppose that is true. It's not unheard of. You wrote a whole glossary. Uh, he, he did send us an 18, 800 page email, but again, that was on the Seahawks, not word. on the cold. 800 IPA. word email. Oh yeah. 800 page email. 800 even page email. <laughs> he, he wrote several books. War and wrote, peace and Pete Carroll. He, he wrote a Robert Carroll biography of love in the time of cholera and Pete Carroll. <laughs> love in the time of COVID and Pete Carroll. Uh, all right. But about this particular beer from our fl- friends at Cloud Burst Brewing. Uh, geez, Kevin Davey at Wayfinder Beer in Portland, who was the creator of the cold IPA, might have really started something with the whole cold IPA thing. Look what he did, that little jerk. Brewers all over the country are making them. It's like a disease, but a delicious one. So we sat down in our home alone to write a recipe. This is it. Don't get scared now. We put together a hot pill of Warrior Extract, Mosaic, Simcoe, Cascade, and Citra, which turned out to be what the French say, Les Delicieux. Uh, so go ahead, eat junk food and watch rubbish and crush this beer. Nobody is going to come out and stop you. You guys give up or are you thirsty for more? The answer is obviously thirsty for more. Is that the description from the story on the... Oh, no, no, that's, okay. a, that's that, from Club that's, Okay, I was going to say, because that's kind of strange. Like the you, you get that it's because it's the Kevin cold IPA. You get, you get that, right? The movie Home Alone. Kevin? Uh-huh. It's the name Kevin McAllister? Yes. It's just a coincidence that it happens to also be the name of Kevin Davey, who invented the cold IPA. So that's what they played with and wrote a Home Alone themed. This is a Home Alone themed? Yeah, did you not get that? So, so we, we sat, sat down in our home alone? You didn't catch that one? All right, fine. Go ahead and eat junk food and watch Look, rubbish? I, I get it. <laughs> oh, um, oh. I, I feel like it was, it was a stretch. I... I appreciate it. They bring me in all right, Roger Ebert style takedowns of <laughs> Kevin Davey. <laughs> I don't feel like he needs takedowns. Again, cold IPAs are have generally been good in our experience. I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't it. even know what a cold IPA is. This is the first time I've well, heard it here. You know, we've we've had cold IPAs on the pod previously. Uh it they're brewed they're actually not brewed in a cold style, which is a little strange, but uh 
it's it's a way that's kind of a, is, is Zach's story explains as you can see if you check out check it out off the post note on soniccentral.com uh, it's kind of a reaction to the popularity of the hazy IPA it's a it's a counter to the hazy IPA I see. so to speak so I'm he's not a big fan of the hazy IPA you're not a say, fan of hazy IPAs no wow I feel like it's the only IPA I'll drink yeah. Uh, it's just something a little bitter about the hazy of IPA. Pace that hardcore like. dance. Wow. It's gotten a little bit out of control. Well, our first toast this week, a big congratulations to the cracking curse, which did the unthinkable. Oh. <laughs> I was like, wait, what are we toasting to here? <laughs> Unseated the famous cousin Katie as Pelton cast MVP. You thought you were going to do it. But the Kraken curse was the one to break through and finally end Katie's streak. Also, the fact that she wasn't on any pods. <laughs> she literally did not appear on a podcast. Well, she was on the one celebrating Pelton Cast MVP last year. I'm not sure if she was back after that. The fact that she finished second after not appearing <laughs> for a year is actually pretty impressive. Oh, remarkably impressive. <laughs> Look, a vote for Katie is a vote against us. Oh, 100%. <laughs> hundred percent. And also, I guess, against the Kraken curse, which... I do love in this voting that you and I routinely finish in last place. Uh, I, at this point, routinely finish in last place. I finished ahead of you. It was just like one year of progressive politics, and it got me to near Katie. <laughs> I'm fucking writing these takes out every single week. What does Katie do? Nothing. Literally nothing. What does the Kraken curse do? Ruins our entire winter. But no... That's the MVP. Totally normal stuff. I mean, we had to sit through a season of crack and hockey, and that's what people were cheering for. But I think the point is the curse was a valuable <sighs> player in this past year. Who invented the curse? <laughs> Literally spent a year invent before the curse even happened. I invented the curse. Look, I may have thought the curse would be because of Coldplay, but... Not cold IPA, cold play. Thank oh God. That's why you finished last. <laughs> oh no, no. I've been talking to you about this. Oh, no. <laughs> but again, again, invented the curse. The curse didn't invent itself, right? In some way, I mean, the curse established itself. I fucking invented Jake Hayner, right? One Saturday night, I was the only person in the country watching UCLA versus that's, Fresno that's State. unlikely. And Jake Hayner, only one, somehow. Uh, the The curse... Right, we popularized the curse. I'm there. I gave you a fuck Pete Carroll and a fuck John Snyder when they traded uh, Russell Wilson. Nothing, nothing. Katie finishes ahead of me. Katie did do a tremendous amount of work for the live show. It's worth noting. Uh, I, I think we should talk. Take this opportunity to, to talk about the the state of the Kraken curse, because <sighs> as we discussed on last week's podcast, the Sounders won the most important match in franchise history last week. What does this say about the Kraken curse? Except for the second, the third thing in the uh, toast here, which relates to it. It says that this tournament doesn't actually matter. Oh, no. I'm sorry, but can like, I, can I, th this can, is the, Can I give the, you a thought, though? What? So the Kraken curse, we dated almost exactly to the day the Kraken started playing preseason games. Okay. You're saying Think that about when the Kraken season When did ended. they stop? Saturday or Sunday? One of those two days. Sunday. Three days before the Kalka Cap Championship. I just did like the final. WeeBay gift. <laughs> you think it's you think it's for real? Like I I mean I don't want to get too excited. I look, those who taunt uh the Kraken curse have been known to suffer the wrath of the Kraken curse. Okay, you are freaking on to something here though. But 
Maybe. We'll see. Curse is lifted. We'll see. I'm, curse I'm not going to. Maybe lifted. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Look, we have respected the curse. I'm sorry, but like you can't say that we've disrespected the curse. It won Pelton Cast MVP this year. It's, that is the ultimate tribute to the curse. <laughs> must, one must pay tribute to the curse. We had to sacrifice Pelton Cast MVP to the curse. <laughs> Gladly would have sacrificed Katie's throne as Pelton Cast MVP after not appearing in a single podcast. Well, again, still, she was had the one that was eligible for MVP this year. We'll always have the moment that she went to go get the two sandwiches and awkwardly ate them in the car. Oh, still not as good as the time that Zach ordered uh, sushi and he was <laughs> oh trying to God. get ramen. Not, not a specific type of sushi. <laughs> <laughs> she just ordered sushi. I feel like those are like, maybe the, there's Katie awkwardly ordering the food, <laughs> Zach ordering sushi, and Jan walking down the, the Vegas Strip, going to each fast food location and buying a single item in order. I feel like those are maybe the three greatest moments of Bell and Cass history. Uh, none of them involved us, naturally. <laughs> oh my God. So, so, but that's pretty, pretty incredible timing. It, it's remarkable. It's very interesting. Okay. So the tournament is important. I take that back. The only thing we can conclude is that the Kraken season has ended and the curse of this first season may be over. Hopefully so. Because <sighs> I'm just going to be real with you. During this curse time period, the Huskies had a coach fired for pushing a player. <laughs> it did happen in his first full season as a head coach. Jake Browning was going to transfer to UW. Jake Tra- or, sorry, Jake no, I mean, I would God. welcome back Jake Please. Browning. <laughs> Please. Maybe, maybe it was a uh, premonition. Uh, <laughs> you know, eligibility. We'll see. We'll see. Jake Hayner was set to transfer back to UW to pull a full Hayner, right? To do what Emmett Matthews was able to successfully By the way, I got an explanation of that, which is that... Let's get to that later. Wait, we're going to do that now? Well, we're not going to talk about Emmett Matthews later. We're done. We're done talking about you, <laughs> Emmett Matthews. I mean, Have fun in West Virginia. Say hi to Joe Manchin for me. Why would we? Why would we need to? I, I wish Emmett Matthews Jr. great success in his fifth year as a senior. It was pointed out that the the rules were different for fall students and winter students because winter students didn't get the full NCAA tournament there in 2020, whereas fall students, you know, fall athletes had a full season in 2019-20 academic year. That was the explanation we got. Jake Hayner was going to transfer back to UW. He was going to pull a full Hayner. I mean, the, the term is named after him. It is. Was going to pull a full Hayner, and then the rug was ripped out from under us at the very last second, and we get Michael Penix and his two interceptions in the spring game. The Seahawks traded the greatest player in franchise history. Not, not the greatest quarterback. The greatest player in franchise history. I'm driving along. On 405, and it's just like, there's a sign when you drive into Renton. It says, injuring Renton, Washington, home of the Seattle Seahawks, home of the Super Bowl 48 champions. That is a Russell Wilson championship right there. There's a fucking sign that's going to live there for decades because of what Russell Wilson did. And they traded that person and drafted a running back with one of those picks. (laughs) I'm just putting this out there. That's what happened in the time of the Kraken curse. they, They got two picks this season, and one of them was used on a running back. So this curse was very strong. I've, again, I'm not disputing the curse. <sighs> I'm just hoping it's over. That's all we can hope. Okay. 
Uh, next up, thanks to the listener for raising two hundred dollars. Hello for Planned Parenthood after with, the curse uh, was over. Also, also after the curse was over with Pelton Cast hats so far, uh, those will be in the mail soon. If uh, you were responsible for those donations, and we still have some, if you're interested, so again, reach out peltoncast at gmail dot com or, or DM us on Twitter or Instagram. This is a monster amount. When you told me that, I was very very excited uh, of how much we're able to raise uh, for Planned Parenthood again. If you're interested, maybe you're not in town or whatever, you didn't get a hat at the live show, please let us know. Uh, we feel like it made the most sense to just do do a donation directly to Planned Correct. Parenthood. Let us know. Send a screen cap or whatever. We will get that hat in the mail. Yeah, whatever you think is appropriate. Uh, lastly this week. So the Sounders did win CONCACAF Champions League, but there was a loss in that game. As sadly, we learned afterwards, after we recorded last week's podcast, that Joao Paulo, who left with a knee injury in the first half of that game, suffered an ACL tear and will be sidelined the rest of the season. So wow. very disappointing for JP and the, uh, and the Sounders, even if it came in the midst of this very exciting night for the franchise. Can we talk winning time for a second? Okay. Uh, spoiler alert, they, they won the championship. <laughs> they beat the Sixers. I was, I was intrigued that they started with the, the, uh, first with the spoiler, cream game. Yes. Spoiler. That they started with the cream injury. Yes. And went from there. That was an interesting move. I was in, in the cold open, basically like straight yeah. into it. Uh, yeah, I was pretty surprised by that also, but I do feel like just in, in taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture, there were issues along the way in winning time. There's definitely some issues. This was an incredible season of television. I thought, I thought it was interesting because I feel like I haven't heard a lot of winning time discourse outside of like NBA media winning time discourse, which tends to be very Jerry West centric. Mm-hmm. And Mike Sean posted on Twitter to on Monday, uh, hey, did people enjoy this season? And immediately like 10 replies saying, yeah, I loved it. There was like one or two negatives, but I feel like the the Jerry West, like the hold that Jerry West has over the general public, I just feel like most people, like average fans, do not give a shit about Jerry West. Also, I think most people are too young to even remember Jerry West when he was like the best GM in the league, let alone... I mean, I barely, I'm not young, but like, I don't remember that much about Jerry West, right? Like the amount that you're even paying attention to GMs. Right. In, it, 19, in the 1990s, it was not as GM-centric as it is now. Trader Bob, of course. But, of course. Well, and also, they're not even GMs anymore, the people who are running the transactions. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's title inflation. But, like, I do feel like the all of the different performances, like I was talking about today, and you just go through and you're just like, well, this was incredible, or that was incredible. I mean, the acting was really, really strong, and there were some powerful scenes that they put together, including, I think, in the this most recent episode... Uh, you know, again, I mean, these things are invented scenes, but they're still entertaining invented scenes. And the best scenes weren't necessarily ones that disparaged the uh, individuals involved. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the basketball also, like the feel of watching the games, and you legit felt like you were watching basketball in 1979, 1980. Just like the yeah. look and the coloring Except of it. Except that it was, wasn't taped away. God. The fucking listening to the Simmons recaps, he's like, what? I'm just look there was a reality to it 
people in Michigan were watching the game. I'm like, dog, like the amount that hearing the Bill Simmons response to this, which I like agree for the most part with what he was saying when he was just like, oh, if you're going to change the scores of some games in January, why doesn't Magic Johnson just murder Kareem Abdul-Jabbar then? <laughs> like he was like the changing a couple of scores of basketball games in January to like extreme scenarios that could happen. And just like, I feel like the liberties that they took on the season ultimately were like, they just had Not to have important. some drama yeah. to get through that time period. And it was like, that's fine. This isn't a fucking documentary. Documentaries are boring. And this isn't... When, like documentaries a docu- are not boring. Some documentaries are boring. Like if this would have been a 10-part documentary on the Lakers 1979-1980 season, I would not have watched it. Yeah, that probably wouldn't have been very This good. was This was more entertaining than the Michael, Michael Jordan documentary. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I... I mean, the basketball scenes, like you mentioned, were quite strong. I learned something legitimately from what last did, night's episode. What did you learn? I never knew that Lionel Hollins was left-handed. Oh, the L train. He went up and took a shot left-handed. I was like, wait, is he? did they get this wrong? And lo and behold, they didn't. They were dead on about that. that I one. mean, that's the wild thing is like the minute details. Waz talked about that on one of the recap pods, yeah. which uh, Waz fucking on it, of course. Obviously. When he was like Kareem wearing his UCLA warm-up. Like I didn't see that when I was watching. Right, I didn't, I didn't catch that. And those are like the types of details that the show had in the tr- true to life. So it's like changing the scores is one thing. But having, being able to hone in on these minute details. But also just like straight up Wood Harris as Spencer Haywood. Like come on. There's no better performance. Just the sweat <laughs> coming off of his face. <laughs> the fact that it's Wood playing a guy that they called Wood. Uh, it all came together quite nicely. Uh, I, I I thought Waz mentioned that they captured the like the look and the feel of 1979 and 1980, and I thought that was one of the coolest things about this show. Yeah, the way they did they did that. I mean, there were only a couple of people who like you you want the best ways to do like dramatized real life dramatizations are when you watch it and you're like that person that I'm watching is the person. You know, it was like like Jamie Foxx is Ray Charles, right? You're like, that's Ray Charles. You know, like Freddie Mercury. Mm. <laughs> You're like, this is over the top. I'm watching a person do like a almost joking Freddie Mercury here. But like when you see Magic Johnson, Magic Johnson is a fucking iconic person. It was like, it felt like that was magic. And that was Kareem. I especially. thought Kareem was the, the best. Oh my God. You're just like, that's young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talking right now. It's pretty wild, and the the choice to use like children of some of the of the Lakers players, like an incredible decision. Yeah, Devon Nixon was outstanding. Th- like, that the only one who I was just like, this person is playing a character was really Jason Siegel as Paul Westhead. Like that's yeah. the only one where it was just it's like the constantly Shakespeare's quoting Paul Westhead. Like I covered Paul Westhead for many years. He worked for the Sonics as an assistant, I, though I didn't actually did, talk to him then. Even though Jason Siegel is not the most famous person, he just is Jason Siegel. <laughs> Adrian Brody as Pat Riley though is is pretty phenomenal. Someone and obviously, had, I mean, so Waz mentioned this. Where he was like, Will Ferrell could not have pulled off what John C. Riley pulled off I, as no, Dr. J. No, I do think, uh, what was the name of the uh, the Apple TV show that, that Will Ferrell did that, with Paul Rudd? I watched it. it I, was, nobody it was like watched that. You were the only one. No, I'm not the only one, but it was like a semi-serious show. And, and Will Ferrell was pretty good in that. But I agree that he would always be Will Ferrell playing I, I Dr. feel like Boss. it's still like a little bit too much of a joke, but seeing John C. Riley as Dr. Jerry, like the energy that he has, you know, like the, the bravado and the sleaze of Dr. Jerry 
but just like the like hint of like the the anxiety or whatever that he had right like the amount that he was able to portray it. like john c Riley is just like a phenomenal actor oh yeah and you watch him and you're like that's dr jerry bus like that is who i'm watching yeah so uh i feel like the season in general like even the moments that you're like okay because there are those moments when you're watching it when you're a little bit of just like, oh, all right. You know, like the talking it, to the screen. It wasn't enough for Spencer Haywood to just try to put out a hit on Paul Westhead. He had to try to put out a hit on the entire the roster. I feel like they didn't quite like, they haven't gotten the story yet. Does that happen post? I I don't know. I, I feel like maybe that was it. My favorite part about the show and the most accurate piece that nobody is bringing up is David Stern being the villain in the show. <laughs> Just fucking willing to... Actually, it, it really is kind of funny because it's almost like if you were to do a David Stern when he was older dramatization, like the visionary David Stern is like, I want I want these star players in these places to be it. And then you take David Stern when he's old and all of a sudden you're just like, we got to have teams in Memphis. Got to have teams in Oklahoma City. And it's just like, maybe something was lost along the way of David Stern, the visionary, and he became a little bit too concerned with holding cities hostage and with having there be a David Stern Boulevard in Sacramento. Jeez, but, I can't imagine the idea that a visionary leader who remains in charge for a long period of time might ultimately seem out of step with modern modern but he's views. like he's a little bit like i can't the, think of any examples of that in my life in the show to a certain extent like he's like visionary but also just like they are fully buying into their this is a frozen envelope like tv show right this is every conspiracy theory that exists about the league is true in the world of winning time uh the shrink next door was the uh, will ferrell show what was record. it called the shrink next oh, door yeah. i saw that I saw that advertised on roku did not click on it. Anyway, I, I just thought it was like such a fun season of TV. The whole thing, like the, the intro with just like the scenes from LA in the 80s. Like I feel nostalgic for a place that I was not alive. I was not alive for the show happening, but you feel nostalgic for it. And just like the energy that existed around the world at the time where I just feel like the world that we're living in currently feels so bleak always, right? And there's like this like... I. And this is probably just nostalgia, right? We will be nostalgic for this time period 20 years from now or whatever. I mean, that's the definition of nostalgia is Chuck Klosterman kept pointing out when he was promoting the 90s, his book, uh, that nostalgia is a false memory by definition. <laughs> but there, there's something about like this energy that existed around L.A. at that time period and especially how the Lakers were part of it, where it was like, it made, it reminded it reminded me of thinking about the Sonics in the nineties, yeah. you know, and the Mariners in the nineties. Uh, like... I listened to the uh, what is that the Sonics Forever podcast, where they had on Sir Mix a Lot and Jason Finn of the Presidents okay. talking about the Sonics anthems that the both of them mm -hmm. did, and definitely like the the music of Seattle in the nineties and the Sonics like a great marriage of exciting times. Oh, for there's both of I mean so much going. It's kind of wild that the Seahawks just weren't part of it. Nope. They were, just, they were the joke of the 90s. They were, they were the ones getting, ones getting made fun of on Almost Live. Uh, but yeah, I just feel like that, that like energy that existed. But there, there was something about seeing a time period where maybe in hindsight, maybe nostalgia or whatever, things just felt like unabashedly energetic and exciting. And it's something that, you know, living in this current moment where we've had the coldest winter of all time in Seattle, Washington, like watching that. And I was just like, damn, I want to be in L.A. in 1980 right now. They weren't even worried about the drop back then. 
All right, let's get into it. So first, want to discuss, it's getting time for us to start our search for Seattle's best barbecue. I know the weather is still kind of bleak here, and you want it to be summer weather, but we got to start thinking about this. So it's definitely time for a call for nominations from the listener uh, of places that we should check out. You know, obviously, we're familiar with a lot of barbecue places here, but uh, always appreciate that that feedback. Now, we did get a listener question from Chris Wheeler's partner that he passed along. Will Korean barbecue and other Asian-style barbecue be part of the search? I feel like I feel like no. I mean, we've included, for example, you know, Korean-style fried chicken. Was it part of the fried chicken search? But in this case, I feel like it's too different of a thing. I agree with you. Like they share a name, and obviously they shared a grilled meats aspect, but so much of American barbecue is about specifically the smoking and that aspect of it in a way that is not present in Asian style barbecue. So I feel like it's, it's unlike things here, but uh, as always welcome the feedback of the listener. We did start out thinking that uh, boneless chicken was better. Uh, with that, it's time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. So, Last week, I saw everyone on the internet celebrating May the 4th. And you know what that got me thinking about? That's right, your Seattle Mariners. And how after decades of darkness, and when I'm talking about the Mariners, I mean decades, an evil rule atop the AL West, there rose a great hope. It wasn't who we were expecting. A young upstart from out of nowhere. It was a disturbance in the force. And from there, a young pitcher rose up and fought against the rule of Darth Altuve and Darth Trout. There's always two. That pitcher did great damage. But, alas, the Empire struck back and was as powerful as ever, even without the cheating. But, that pitcher, Luke Gilbert, let's call him, he is not who I was thinking of last week. It was one line, spoken from Yoda cryptically, a prophecy, if you will. There is another. What could it mean? Enter the another. Even though his name sounds like he, sh- like he would be more likely to fight King DDD and Waddledees, instead, no! The one to restore the force and guide the Mariners in taking down the evil empire has shown himself by the name of Princess George Kirby. <laughs> His debut performance was nothing but Jedi-like on Sunday. His curveball was moving and lightsaber was saving. A second and last hope. The only one powerful enough to restore the Mariners and bring down the Death Stars atop the AL West. Along with his friend Jared Kelnick, the human equivalent of an Ewok. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Uh... Well, and George Kirby was the responsible for the only Mariners win in the past week as they snapped a six-game losing streak when he started Sunday. Uh, he didn't get the win because they were uh, still nothing-nothing when he left that game after six shutout innings with seven strikeouts in his Major League debut coming up from A to replace the demoted Matt Brash. But uh, Mariners tied it at one in the ninth with an Abraham Toro home run and then got the walk-off hit from Ty France in the 10th inning on Sunday. And then they lost 9-0 to the Phillies on Monday. It was dark. Not great. Uh, Kirby, by the way, number 34 in ESPN's prospect rankings. 
Before that blowout loss Monday, the Mariners had the worst record uh, of any team with a positive run differential. They were no longer positive because they were plus one before that. Uh, you haven't heard a lot about fun differential thus far this year from Scott Service because the Mariners are only four and five in one run games after going 13 and seven last year. There's one other Mariners thing we need to discuss because it's maybe more exciting than watching the current team play, even George Kirby and Logan Gilbert. And that's this ad for DirecTV with a Ghostbusters oh, theme okay. featuring Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, and minor, minor, minor leaguer David Ortiz. So the question that you had, I, I told you this was obvious that they were choosing people who were in the Mariners organization. Because they definitely, when you think of what organization if we're going to promote in a national TV ad, oh, it's the Seattle Mariners. Why? Okay. Can you answer me the question? Why would you have Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson, and also another player who is in the Mariners organization? Because they're all extremely popular, famous they're players. Especially all of them except Griffey are probably at this point more famous for playing for other teams besides but the Mariners. But do you think that those four players are the most famous and recognizable players of the 90s, early 2000s? No, Derek Jeter's busy with the CSPN Plus documentary. I don't know if he had time for the ad. So you think this is... God, Derek Jeter kill me do you think this is two through five you think i dislike each row um <laughs> i mean if you are gonna do it exclusively people with mariners ties you go with david ortiz because he was in the minor league there is a had famous home run story derby. about a home run it's derby famous in with... mariners circles i don't know if like somebody in in austin texas knows about the the home run derby they don't even have a baseball team there <laughs> that's true <laughs> I don't know if someone in Austin, Texas, San Francisco, in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> like what? I don't know. How did you choose that? In I'm, Columbus, Ohio. I think I thought of Boston. In and Montreal, then Quebec. <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. I mean, Portland, Oregon, maybe. Oh that is God. Mariners country. But the, okay, there are three players who are very famous for being on the Mariners, and a fourth player who was on the Mariners. Like, I don't know. If, again, I don't know if they're very famous for being on the Mariners. Aaron you is don't most know if Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr., and Randy Johnson were very famous for being I on mean, the Mariners. I mean, everyone knows that they were teammates. So I think that if it were just the three of them, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's cool. Mariners nineties. They found Makes a sense. theme. They found a I theme. Just, there's no way you're they telling found me that it is random that all four of these players played for the Mariners. They just chose Didn't, four again, players. David Ortiz did not play for the Mariners. Was he not played, even using the name David Ortiz when he played he in the farm in system. The Mariners organization. I'm literally not like making this up to argue with you. I just watched the ad and I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting that the DirecTV had a Mariners themed ad. <laughs> I'm, I, I may have to do a Twitter poll. About whether that it was an intentional. Do people know? Did David Ortiz play for the Mariners? Oh. I, people just this is going to be up, like though. your trivia questions at the live show that you were like nobody will know this and but people answer the, it before we can. What get about it out. the ones that I thought people would know and then no one knew? What one was that? Sale uh, three was the answer. No, Gerald Patio. No, it was neither of those. Whatever <laughs> I it know, was. Just... <laughs> I can come up with some good Sale three questions. What what was the one? So, so, you know, if we go long enough in winning time, Sedale 3 eventually is going to factor in. It's <laughs> trade from the Sonics to the Lakers go. to replace Magic Johnson. Uh, Brian Anger was the question that people knew before we could even get it out. That's yes. correct. Yes. You can figure out what the question was. Did that get cut off in the live show? No, that's on there. Okay. That one is on there. Uh, well, there was one that nobody knew the answer to? 
was it? Did people know the Mike Sean one? About I can't who remember. Broke the it news? was the last. It was the last one that people didn't know. People definitely knew who broke the news about Mike Sean. I think they knew that. But I'm just saying, like, why would you choose the King Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, and Randy Johnson were all famous for playing together, and David Ortiz is a famous baseball player who also is part of the Mariners organization. Like, you could go through every single organization in the all of baseball. And there's somebody, Greg Maddox, right? Like so many players. There's like 30 Yankees who it could have been, not including. 30 Yankees. But there's a lot who could have been part of. The, I would not, if you were like going through the most famous baseball players in the 90s, I don't feel like Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., and Alex Rodriguez are like one, two, and three. I mean, I think it, if it were just, again, if we're just the three of them, I would agree it was a Mariners theme. David Ortiz does not make sense with that theme, no matter he, what you try to he say. He does. He was in the Mariners organization, and there was a home run derby that more people know about than you think that he beat them. I think you're overestimating your own knowledge of this home run derby relative to everyone else. So you think that people are out there just being like, this is an ad, a Ghostbusters ad with four baseball players from the 90s. Correct. Or really I mean, David Ortiz is not from the 90s. That's also part of it. I mean, obviously, he was in the Mariners organization in the 90s. He did not become a major league player until the 2000s, I don't think, did he? He certainly didn't David become Ortiz... a famous baseball player until... You don't think well David Ortiz played until the 2000s? I mean, he was 97 that he was traded for Dave Hollins. He was still in the minors at that point. I guess he he probably did play for the Twins in the late 90s. But it was... Not it was... that many. Uh, three seasons... He was not very good. He had a total of 10 home runs in the 90s. <laughs> there you go. He definitely didn't get good until that's something very strangely. He just started getting really powerful right around when he was old. I just don't even know what happened. One would think. <laughs> started getting extraordinarily powerful right around 2003. Got to Boston. All right. This is enough time on this topic. Well, you're just wrong. Uh, How is he a DA, a straight up DH, but just like four, like eight ten ops, seven ninety nine ops? Yeah, I mean he wasn't he wasn't that good. Back then. <laughs> so that's why he was available to the Red Sox chiefly, <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, continuing our rundown, we because of the fact that we're recording this on Monday night, we do not have yet have the results of the NHL draft lottery for the Kraken, so we'll have to discuss those on next week's pod. Oh, too bad, uh, Sounders. Continued MLS play Saturday at FC Dallas and suffered a two nothing loss with a a uh, reserve unit. And as we come down off this Concacaf Champions League high that we we're on with the Sounders, uh, MLS play might have to start worrying about that. Twelfth in points per match right now in the Western Conference uh, with seven points. Minnesota, who they host on Sunday in what I would consider the real start of the MLS regular season for the Sounders. Many are saying yes. Uh, that's the team they're chasing for the last playoff spots. They've got 14 points in 10 matches to the Sounders' 7 points so far through 8 matches in MLS regular season play. Uh, who was the only player who started both Wednesday's final and Saturday's game, and that's because he left Wednesday's game in the opening minutes with an injury that was not serious. Uh, the reserves managed to keep the game scoreless through the first hour, 
before an FC Dallas breakthrough in the 65th minute shortly after the introduction of the Rule Dans and Albert Rushnak. That group still couldn't get much going offensively. The Sounders were outshot 22-6 to and did not have a shot on goal in this match as they ended up losing 2-0. Uh, before they resume MLS regular season play, there's yet another competition the Sounders are in, and that is for the first time since 2019, the U.S. Open Cup. They'll host the San Jose Earthquakes on Wednesday. Uh, last two U.S. Open Cup competitions were canceled due to the pandemic. Sanders, before that, had lost their last two first-round matches, have not won in U.S. Open Cup since 2017. Uh, but they are still 21-1-1 all-time in U.S. Open Cup play at Starfire, which is where they will host Wednesday's match. So uh, we'd expect a reserve-heavy lineup again in this one, but a better chance against San Jose, which who knows how seriously they'll be taking it to potentially come away with a win in this one. Although, frankly, you might not want to go that far in the U.S. Open Cup given how many games these players have already played with the CONCACAF Champions League. Don't really necessarily need that many more midweek games. Uh, we mentioned that Joao Paulo injury. Obed Vargas and Josh Atencio started a defensive meal midfield on Saturday uh, in his absence with Danny Leva playing off the bench. All three of those guys who are going to be the replacements for Joao Paulo are 20 or younger. Vargas, who probably is the foremost choice among that group, came on in the CONCACAF Champions League final to finish out that match. Still age 16 and really just a crucial crucial player for the Sounders at this point. <laughs> Well, Rain also coming off their uh, cup competition in the NWSL, not having as much success yet in the NWSL regular season. A 2-2 draw Sunday at home versus Racing Louisville. The Rain got a brace from Ziara King, but conceded twice with an own goal charged to Bethany Balser in the 60th minute, equalizing the score for that draw. They will look for their first win in the NWSL regular season on Friday in a derby match at Portland. The third meeting between the two rivals already, including the NWSL <laughs> Challenge Cup. <coughs> Thorns, who uh, had a draw in Seattle and then lost at home to the Reign in the Challenge Cup, won their regular season opener 3 nothing over the Kansas City Current before getting last weekend off. The Seattle Storm season well underway at this point. On Friday night, it was the... Uh, the debut for the Storm in the regular season at Climate Pledge Arena, the long-awaited return to Seattle Center, and uh, after a slow start, really opened things up in the third quarter against the shorthanded Minnesota Lynx, outscoring them 34-14 in the period, en route to a 97-74 win in front of uh, a really great crowd at Climate Pledge Arena. Uh, some big names, Rapino obviously was there, courtside, Jay Inslee, uh, and then Ben Gibbard, we talked about back in the fall when he played the opening concert at Climate Pledge <laughs> Arena with Death Cab. There's talking, no Death Cab curse. There is no Death Cab no, curse. Definitely not. With uh, he mentioned what a, how excited he was for the Storm to play there, and I was like, that's funny. I've never seen Ben Gibbard at a Storm game. Well, he was there, there was. on Friday, courtside, right in front of me. Yeah, that motherfucker wasn't going to Angel the Winds Arena. <laughs> Uh, it was not as strong a performance for the Storm on Sunday. I think you might have missed Ben Gibbard at any of the games that he was at beforehand because he looks like every <laughs> other person. <laughs> well, he was he was on the arena on the scoreboard. So Did they say Ben Gibbard, lead him. singer, death cap for cutie? I don't know if they said lead singer. I think they just said Ben Gibbard, death, death cap, cap for cutie. cutie. Okay, yeah. all right, that's fine. He's a big enough star that he's going to get called out at Storm games. 
Uh, not as not as strong a performance for the Storm Sunday in their road opener at the Las Vegas Aces uh, as they lost 85-74. Kind of an unusual game because the Storm starters played so poorly, fell behind early in this one. And it was the bench, uh, much as they did in the first half on Friday, that really got back into things and tied this game after three quarters. And then the teams put their starters in again, and the Storm got smoked by the Aces starters. Uh, Super Jewel Lloyd and Brianna Stewart, when the big three were all on the court, the Storm were outscored by 10 points in 27 minutes in this one, which is quite unusual. Uh, Kelsey Plum also doing a lot of the damage for the Aces. Ugh. Big fourth quarter for her after the Storm had really kept her in check for the first three quarters. She's still the team that drafted her, right? Correct. San Antonio she, drafted her. Yeah, she was drafted in San Antonio and moved with the team to Las Vegas. And an unrestricted free agent again after this season. Hello. She seems pretty happy in Las Vegas. I don't know if I'm counting on that one as much as I'm optimistic about Courtney Vandersloot coming home. But but also knowing that Sue Bird is retiring and there are two point guards with ties to the Northwest who are free agents. Like, I mean, I feel like you go to Kelsey Plum and you say, "Eh, you're a six man here or whatever. Like, maybe you want to start. Maybe you want to start and lead this team and be able to feed Brianna Stewart in the post. I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly, that, that phone call will be made. I all love to Sue Bird, but you bring Kelsey Plum to Seattle. Hey, I, I don't know if I would put it that way. Oh, man. But if you look forward to the possibility of a Sue Birdless future, if that does indeed come to pass, either Kelsey there Plum or Courtney Vanderson. There will be a Sue Birdless future. Sue Bird will still be part of the organization. Direct sure. TV ads, right? <laughs> Who's in the direct TV ad? I feel like it's like Sue Lauren Jackson. Uh, oh, for the storm. Yeah, yeah. So it's someone that they drafted, but never Swin played Cash, here. Did Swin Cash play too much? Yeah, she played too much. Ellie Quigley did play here, but she would be a good choice as someone who was drafted by the storm, but really made it banging somewhere uh-huh. else. So we'll keep workshopping that. You'll one. be like, oh yeah, it was because just biggest stars. <laughs> Diana Taurasi was unavailable that day. <laughs> well, speaking of DT. Oh, no. The Storm have a home and home coming up with the Phoenix Mercury. It's kind of odd because I think they play only three times this season. I don't think they play four times. And two of them are going to be in the first week of the season here. Uh, Wednesday, they continue the road, their road trip at Talking Stick Resort. No, not it's not Talking Stick. Footprint Center. Uh in Phoenix. Thank you. Please get the corporate sponsors right. Got to get that right. Yeah. Saturday, they're back home at Climate Pledge Arena mm-hmm. in a nationally televised game that'll be on ABC at 12 noon, a matinee on Saturday. So that'll be a lot of fun at the arena. If I don't have baseball to go to, I will definitely watch that. Uh, Phoenix, baseball to go to. Phoenix lost pretty badly at home to Las Vegas in their season opener on Friday, but they were without, in addition to, of course, Brittany Griner, who remains wrongfully detained in Oof. Russia. Uh, also, Brianna Turner and Diamond DeShields, two of their starters, who are finishing up their finals over in Italy. Uh, the team announced wow, I'm today. Weirdly for it because they're playing in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the team announced today <laughs> so that, that they. <laughs> yeah. You said Italy, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Actually. If, they're play, think, if they were playing in Turkey. Yeah, no, yeah, fuck that. No. <laughs> Every other country. <laughs> Any other country in the world. Uh, what team are they, are they playing for? I have this written down somewhere, but I can't remember. I, I Where know. do you have it written down? Oh, I have I have a projection of when late arrivals will return to play. How else would I do my preseason projections? Uh, Brianna Turner was playing for Bologna, and Diamond DeShields was playing for Shio. 
Shio? Yeah. What is Shio? Skio? I don't know. How is it spelled? S-C-H-I-O. I thought they would all be the same as Italian soccer clubs. No, it's not that same. It's not as much as in some of the other like countries. Like Barcelona or whatever? Yeah. Like, is there like a Bayern basketball team? I don't know about that. Not not a notable women's basketball power Bayern, if there is. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I think they made a really good decision by playing <laughs> Italian basketball. <laughs> so anyways, they both returned to Phoenix on Monday and uh, should presumably be available to play in that one on Wednesday and then again on Saturday. So we'll know a little bit more about the Storm at that point with those couple of matchups against Phoenix. Uh, the, the other thing about that Las Vegas game is, you know, uh, the defensively, the team looked really good, I think, for much of this game. Breon January has been awesome at that end of the court. Gabby Williams, their other main addition this offseason, great at that end of the court. But Gabby Williams was, I think, over seven from the field in this one. And that was kind of the big question is, are you sacrificing something offensively to get the defensive upgrade with Gabby Williams starting at small forward? So that's definitely something to keep an eye on as the storm go forward. Uh, UW softball saw their 11-game winning streak snapped with a pair of losses Friday and Saturday at Utah before rallying to win Sunday's season series finale. Not season finale. Uh, Gabby Plain was hit hard for five runs in five innings on Friday, albeit only one earned. Then Saturday, uh, Kelly Lynch started and was knocked out early. Pat Moore ended up taking the loss despite a strong relief effort when the Utes got a walk-off 4-3 win in the bottom of the seventh. On Sunday, Plain returned to form, holding Utah to a solo home run in six innings with a two-run Bailey Klingler homer, giving the Huskies the lead for good. Despite those two losses, UW heads into the final weekend of Pac-12 play, still third in the conference at 13-8 and 8. They could conceivably catch UCLA for second, but only if the Bruins get swept in their own matchup. And the Huskies will have their hands full, hosting Arizona State, which now leads the conference at 18-3 after taking two of three from UCLA at home. Sun Devils were ranked number 12 in last week's poll, but will surely move ahead of the Huskies when the new poll is released on Tuesday. Arizona State? Yeah. Of all teams. I mean, you know, they've. I guess Arizona has historically been more of the, uh, the, the softball power from that state. But uh, yeah, Pac-12. Uh, little UW football news. Left tackle Jackson Kirkland ruled eligible for his sixth season by the NCAA officially after withdrawing from the NFL draft following ankle surgery. He's expected to be healthy in time for fall camp, so obviously a boon for UW football in 2022. They, they lost a quarterback who is committed to the team for... Did you see this? I don't think he was committed to the team. So he's a quarterback, I believe, from Tacoma who mm-hmm. committed to play at Missouri under offensive coordinator Bush Hampton. So he never committed to UW? don't think so. I think you know he was someone that they were interested in. Okay. But I don't <clears throat> recall him being committed. Okay, I saw that and I was kind of like, I'm fine with this. Like, weirdly, quarterback is the position that you could probably lose recruits the best. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those positions where it's like the fact that you only play one is like having good recruits is a little bit of a nuisance to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an unusual position. There's... You know, obviously there's a lot more transferring going on in college football now, not as much as in college basketball, but a lot more. But that's always kind of been the case at the quarterback position because of the fact that you're not playing multiple players at that oh, spot. I mean, and the reality is, it's like if you don't need a quarterback, they'd find a quarterback. 
you know, if, if if they had a year where the team was good otherwise, but they needed a quarterback, you know, not uh, better than the Seahawks, but like at the other positions. But like if they needed to go out and just find a quarterback somewhere, that quarterback would become available. One would think, yeah. So it was kind of just like any any other position. And I think the other thing about this, you know, the Seattle Times article mentions from uh, recruiting analyst Brandon Huffman that Johnson wanted to play in the SEC. That, that was big for him. And <laughs> Missouri. What's <laughs> in the SEC? Technically, technically, it'd be like, I've always wanted to play in the AL West. Mariners. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I had a professor in college who was just like, I always wanted to to move to the American West. And he was like, I ended up in the American West, Southwest, <laughs> Arkansas. And it's just like one of those things where it's like. It was a very loose definition. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, it was a hilarious, this was fucking 10 years ago or whatever. 15. You, if you, 15. Have, you had a college professor. Oh, graduated, was not graduated 15 years not, ago from college. Your, your child was born 10 years ago. Oh God. Today, Precisely. to this day. Happy birthday, fantasy. Uh, baby fantasy genius. Oh, Lord. So old. Anyway, when he said that, I was just like emblazoned into my mind, this professor, because he was from the Caribbean, and he was like, I always wanted to move to the American West. And he's like, yeah, I ended up in the American West, the Southwest. <laughs> That's this quarterback always dreamed of playing in the SEC, Missouri. <laughs> the old Southeastern Conference in Missouri. <laughs> But anyways, the larger point is like as much as people always want to talk about, we got to put the fence around the state, got to put the fence around the state. It's like, you know, collectively, you want to do well uh, recruiting players from the state of Washington. And if there are a number of blue chip recruits and they all go elsewhere, I think that is probably a negative commentary on the coaching staff has happened with the uh, 2020 or 2021, whatever class that was in, in the state of Washington during the Jimmy Lake era. But when it's one individual player, like people have all sorts of reasons that they decide to attend a specific college and going to the place that's closest to them is not always high on that list. So it's unrealistic to think that every recruit from the state of Washington who's good is just going to automatically come to UW. It's a dumb, it's anti-player almost to think that way. I mean, the other reality is that a four-star quarterback is not actually that good of a quarterback. Like, Well, I mean... It's not the the sure thing that people like to believe that it is. Like, I mean, to be a sure, quote-unquote, sure thing quarterback, you have to be, like, one or two. Like, you have to be very, very high. Like, the amount of quarterbacks who are, quote-unquote, four-star quarterbacks is there's there's some grade-fixing going on. And also... Well, I I mean, I think it reflects the importance of the position because if someone at that position does hit, they become an extreme... It's, you know, it's like our conversation about quarterbacks in the draft. Even someone who a quarterback who doesn't quote have a first round grade can still end up one of the most valuable players in the draft. And I really take offense with Jimmer for saying that I would say anything bad about the fine state of Nebraska, and especially Saddle Creek Records. But I do want to take offense with the state of Missouri. Oh wow! As probably the state, just the idea. I mean, I I get it is. It is probably it makes sense why it's part of the SEC, but it is a stretch to call it the Southeast. And I mean, granted, look, the, you understand that these conferences just they, exist. Have for, they been in the SEC for a long time? Or are they a relatively new? One? They went in with A and M, right? Texas A and M when they left. Uh, that makes. I feel like Texas is more the Southeast. 
than Missouri is. I mean, this but, just exists is money making conferences. The geographic idea went whoa, out the whoa, door a long whoa, time whoa, ago. Whoa. They exist as education making conferences. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think Missouri is maybe voted the most likely state that I could not name. <laughs> you could not name? I could not find on a map okay. and could not. Could just, you just pointed to that state. I'd be like, dog, I don't know why there's a state above Arkansas. <laughs> you just want to like a hole in the map? <laughs> All right. There's my slander for the state of Missouri. Wow. I hope Jimmer appreciates it. I'm just, I mean, they're neighbors, I guess. <laughs> One state away. I didn't even know Missouri existed. Didn't even know Missouri existed. Like it has some of the finest, most racist fans in sports. Um, <laughs> that's just in baseball. You take is that you taking it out? <laughs> I thought you were leaning forward to type the timestamp to take that out. <laughs> just in baseball and also probably football. I feel like the I feel like I draw a distinction is to some degree between the western half of Missouri and the eastern half. Of, by the by the way, this is also I don't know how the uh, the listener in St. Louis has reacted. To Who this. is that? The, Robert Mays? No, no, no. <laughs> the listener coming. Noah. Noah. He's I, from Seattle. He may he may agree with some of the criticism. <clears throat> Certainly about the Cardinals fans. <sighs> But but it was just like whatever, just have fun in Missouri, dude. Like if you if you I mean, get, I, I wish him great success. No, there's nothing like personal. Like I I hope that he's able to start there. But it's just like all right, fair enough. Like to me, if again, if it's your dream of playing quarterback in the SEC, it's like mission accomplished. You know, it's just like well, Vanderbilt I mean, and Kentucky you can already have quarterbacks. Be very good in at Missouri. What? You can certainly be a very you know, good I actually think Missouri is like a pretty Missouri. solid football school, right? I mean, like Gary Pinkle for it, ever. Yeah. Is he, he still he, their coach? He is not. He is okay. retired. UW legend Gary Pinkle. Yeah. yeah. I only know him as UW legend Gary Pinkle. Exactly. <clears throat> is it time to get to the 800-word email? <laughs> I want to talk about Lugo's baseball game. Oh, okay. As a follow-up, too, we toasted to them being champions last week. And I thought that the most important thing that could happen to the team after being champions in that tournament was to really get wrecked <laughs> and just get brought back to earth a little bit. And they, they have a month of playing there. I, I feel it's sort of like a friendly rival. Uh, uh, it's more like UW Wazoo than like UW Oregon to a certain extent or UW Missouri or something like that. The, <laughs> Which category was you Missouri in? <laughs> hated, hated rivals <laughs> after they took Bush Hamden and also the Porter brothers. Um, but I mean, uh, we, they didn't take the Porter brothers. Yeah, we we gave away the uh, Porter really family out of our way too. Maybe I also hate upstate New York. Um, <laughs> it's just an anti-Rochester take. Uh, they just really needed to eat shit, though. The team they were they were a little bit too big for their britches, as nine year olds and ten year olds, of course, and came up against uh, friendly rival, friendly rival in the Stodds team, as named after the Stodds batting cages and Mariners legend Bob Stoddard. I saw him on Saturday. Oh wow! By the way, that was your celebrity signing. I saw Ben Gibbard. <laughs> you saw Bob Stoddard. Bob Stoddard pretty easily to pretty easy to see at the batting cages that he owns. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Ben 
didn't give her notes any batting cages. Honestly, I was there and it was so fucking packed that I thought to myself, Kevin Pelton should open a batting cage. <laughs> I was like, this I actually, I came, I came up with the best idea ever, which was hipster bar slash batting cage. Just give me all the money. Thank you. <laughs> What you want is you want balls coming at people at 50, 60 miles per hour and also alcohol. <laughs> yes, you got to combine those two. But I definitely was just like, you know, you know that if you were at a hipster bar and there was a batting cage, a lot of people would get in there and take some cuts. Of course. Right? Yeah. I, you don't need like a ton of batting cages, but just like a, a couple of cages, like one and like a slower pitch, like like 40 miles an hour. It's basically your version of pool. <laughs> It's like your version of pool, except if the balls are flying at you at 40 miles an hour. You know what, though? Still somehow better than darts than drinking. It really, it actually what is. What a strange maybe, combination maybe, for us to come up with. more safe than darts. <laughs> oh, my. But I, I definitely was there, and I was just I like, damn. I was like, do they serve drinks at this fucker? Like, there is like a bar and grill next door to the Stods. Uh, so they played the the a friendly rival Stods on Mercer Island. I've made my first visit to Mercer Island in a long period of time for this game. That's just like the homeland for baseball, I guess. I don't know. Every game, a, a team from Newcastle can play against a team from Ren, uh or a team from also Newcastle. I don't know where Liberty is. Issaquah, let's say, home of Tim Linscombe. Somewhere in the east side. I think. I think. Let's call it Issaquah. Uh, but they got. Uh, pretty summarily crushed, I would say. I don't, I don't think they got crushed, but they they were comfortably outplayed in that. Yes, Com- comfortably outplayed, and just reminded that you could be the champion of something, but there's always somebody better out there. Oh wow! It's, it's so FC Dallas did the same thing to the South. <laughs> it's kind of true, right? <laughs> Look, the roster ain't the same, and all of a sudden you just you you might be the champion, but you could get beaten easily as well. There's always somebody coming for you. So I thought that was an important lesson for Luca. Because they were, he was just like he was a little too confident. And and look, he was pitching against me on Sunday. I was cracking those balls, and he was just like, "Well, you're an adult. That's why you're hitting so hard off of me." And I was like, Pfft. "I seen some nine year olds doing that earlier today." Oh no! So uh, we might at some point. I described one point during the game. I described you as having big Marv Marinovich energy <laughs> when he hit a double. No, I, I, yelled, I did that. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. That would be the that would be the moment. <laughs> I would have done it. It was that instead oh, was of was that it? Threatened to throw him out of the family. He had a great game. I, I I mean I after the Mariners game where they lost nine to nothing, of course, <laughs> to the to the struggling Phillies uh, at home. <clears throat> also, good good run differential the Phillies. The Phillies have a good run differential. Yeah. Well, especially after tonight. Yes. Uh <laughs> Again, it was cold for both teams. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, Julio went three for four, and I was like, well, that was kind of like Lucas' game on Mercer Island. <laughs> they lost, but he played pretty well. So, mission accomplished? <sighs> Me and Marv, he makes some really good points. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know. Oh, no. All right, to the 800-word email on the Seahawks draft. Uh. From Zach, the third Pelton brother, Zach Jabal, who is responsible for much of the content in this week's pod. And this beer was very drinkable, by the oh, way. Oh, great. Great beer. One of my favorite beers named Kevin. I don't know about had. much of the content. Did his child play on Mercer Island? <laughs> 
Uh, thanks a ton for all the content you guys put out around the draft, not just the previous, but the multiple reaction podcasts as well. That said, I think you guys have maybe been a touch guilty of putting too much stock into what the Seahawks have said and not enough into what they have actually done. For a variety of reasons, I wouldn't expect Pete Carroll or anyone else in the organization to come out and say, yeah, we intend to be bad in 2022, or even anything less than claiming they can compete right now. I don't think they intended to be bad in 2011, but they also knew there was a reasonable chance that they'd struggle given the QB situation and the fact that they were still building things up on both sides of the ball, which is a fair point. I I, I once wrote a blog back in 2011 giving them credit for not re-signing Matt Hasselbeck because I thought it showed that they understood that they weren't as good as they looked by winning a playoff game that year against the Saints or the year before. Uh, returning to the email, this draft was 100% not one, not not designed about either filling holes for the 2022 season or wild gamble to try to preserve job security because despite what Tristan thinks Pete and John will only be gone after 2022 if they want to be by choosing them over Russ it's clear that they have Jody Allen's trust and while obviously multiple bad seasons would undoubtedly change that I don't think a bad 2022 will I think that's probably true. I mean, it's pretty much what Brady Henderson said when we asked him about it a few weeks back. I, I will say Brady seems to know what's up. <clears throat> he's he's had some, some pressing comments. At the same time, there is a difference between a conceptual Seahawks without Russell Wilson, and they still they put their asses out there by trading Russell Wilson. Like, Pete and John... <clears throat> They they were saying this is our organization. This isn't Russell Wilson's organization. Like it was a they, bold... they were saying we own this city. Have you watched that? Not yet. Okay, great reference. Um, you clearly you understand. Uh, I've I've seen the title. <laughs> I've seen the title. <laughs> I heard it's about Branson, Missouri. Um, <laughs> Columbia. <laughs> oh, it's about Columbia. Columbia, Missouri. College town. Yeah, that's the joke, because we're calling back University of Missouri. Okay. Uh, that's not where Noah works, is it? No. Okay. He doesn't work in Branson either. <laughs> Nobody works in Branson. <laughs> Some people must Stop in there for a long weekend. Uh, <clears throat> and our Those grandparents drink. go there to go meet their old war buddies. Those drinks uh, aren't serving themselves. Uh, do you remember when Grandma Grandpa used to go to Branson? So weird. And then like, the only my only references to Branson, Missouri, are from The Simpsons and our grandparents going there. <laughs> That's it. I would not know it otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we can know what Jody will think about the organization if it is a train wreck. Like, if there's a 2-15 and 15 season, all of a sudden things are going to look different. Like, there can be a perspective now. I don't think that they can go to Jody and be like, we wanted a 2-15 and 15 season. We were expecting that. I also don't know if I think the team is that bad. Like... I think that I think the reality is they're probably a six and eleven, seven and ten team, or whatever. And I think that they can make it through that. I think they have one year after that, but they can make it through that. But they have to start really turning things around quickly. But also, the reality is Pete Carroll is not a young coach. Like the amount of rebuilds that Pete Carroll can last through is not that many. This is it. We'll we'll see how how literally he's taking the win forever. Uh I, I I appreciate the positivity about the draft, and I also appreciate the positivity about the organization long term. I still think if you're saying that this is a draft, what? I mean, there's still there's still more of this email to come. So oh, I thought I thought you were done. No, it's eight hundred words, man. 
Do you know how many words know, 800 is? Really. You said it was 800 pages. Uh, so we'll get back to that in a second. I want to say two things. Number one, like every rebuilding plan has ownership support until it doesn't. Oh, yeah. Like Sam Hinkie had Philadelphia ownership it's, support. It's a little bit different. Sam, Sam Hinkie did not. There's not an injuring Renton Washington, <laughs> home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Philadelphia 76ers. I, I agree. That would be a really weird sign. <laughs> Very confusing. <laughs> Everyone knows you got to go to Camden, New Jersey to find the Sixers. Is that where they play? That's not where they play, but that's they where practice. they practice. Okay. Uh, but number two, uh, are we sure Jody Allen's going to be making these decisions in a year? Because that's that's a variable that Pete Carroll and John Schneider might want to consider. I mean, if there's a new owner, they are. I truly think that a new owner comes in and is just like, this is my team. Y'all are gone. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Continuing the email. Even if they are in the hot suit, they absolutely did the right thing in this draft, whether they're building for their own future or someone else's. Sure, Charles Cross might not be better than Dwayne Brown right away, but Brown has been declining, obviously can't play forever. Play agree. More than that, it's clear that even if the team didn't want to let Russ cook, they recognize that being able to protect the passer is a crucial at- attribute for a tackle, even if you do intend to run the ball more than most teams. Having two young, talented starters at the tackle spots will also be a tremendous attribute or selling point for either a top draft pick next year or a veteran free agent slash trade target. I mean, I think we... We said the same thing. Like I was the one who pointed out, like, yeah, this draft actually is bad news for the CX competing in 2022. But that was in the context of saying those were the right moves. Yeah, I still think it's a little optimistic. Oh no, not read the close. whole email and let's come. Let's, let's no, we got to kind of work through this piecemeal because there's different. It jumps around about this. Is that long of an email? It is. I, I mean, it is sort of like again the the best laid plans of Pete and Min. Like the reality is. We think that Charles Cross and Abe Lucas are going to be good offensive line. I mean, there's a lot more optimism about Charles Cross if you're the ninth pick than is the well, yes. 72nd. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, my big thing. The the chances of I, uh, Charles Cross probably is going to come in and start right away, and probably will be relatively bad and grow into the position and be. I mean, we saw Ben post the stats by by season two or whatever. I think he'll be like nearing an All Pro lineman and nearing an All Pro. That's or that's sorry, nearing awesome. a Pro Bowl lineman. I mean, even that is probably pretty optimistic. He still was only the third tackle drafted in this year's draft. Like, I, I'm very excited about Charles Cross's future, but I still think that's a few years down the road. I mean, I, I think, I think average starting left tackle in year two would be very exciting development. Everybody was really excited about drafting offensive linemen, and I don't, I, and me as well. But at the same time. I really think it is very hard across. I have not seen the stat to show me that there is a direct correlation between having a good offensive line and being a good team. The only thing that I think there is a direct correlation between is passing success and it really is quarterback play, right? But like that's the only thing you could draw any sort of like direct correlation. But, but Ben has two. pointed out that pass blocking is pretty well correlated with you know passing success okay so if that's the case if pass blocking is and and again i it's a very difficult position because you need five players and you know we talked about the raiders like the if you're if your investment is very heavily in the offensive line i think you sort of reach a point where you're like we've invested really heavily in the offensive line we don't have. We're not quite a good enough team. Where can we get more money? And the place that you can get more money is the offensive line, because having five really good offensive linemen is an extraordinarily expensive thing. 
So just like as far as allocation of resources, where you're spending money, if you're spending that many resources and that much money on the offensive line, I'm not sure if that's the best way to make a team. Drafting a player at pick nine, if he ends up being a Pro Bowl left tackle, is probably the right decision. The thing that I find funny is like usually drafting an offensive lineman in the first round is really like the eating your vegetables of... Uh, being an NFL fan and Seahawks fans are like so into oh, it. Oh, we've done so much worse than eating our vegetables. Oh. We have ate actual shit. <laughs> like they drafted fucking 25 year old LJ Collier. They drafted a running back. They drafted an off ball linebacker. You know, like this is for most, most teams, an offensive tackle at pick nine is just like, all right, well we drafted an offensive tackle, whatever. But for the Seahawks doing something normal, is that is celebratory? Yeah, we're gonna get more to that in this okay. email as well. We got three paragraphs. So Left. You, yeah, see, so you have a sense of where we're going. <laughs> All right. Yes, the team superficially has a lot invested in running backs, but oh, uh, yeah. But both Carson and Penny are major question marks, and also only under contract for this year. Adding an elite running back prospect makes a ton of sense to me. And for all the talk about it, running backs don't matter and that you can get a great back in the later rounds or undrafted free agency. I don't think that's out actually borne out by reality quite to the extent that is sometimes claimed. If you look at the top 20 backs by DR from 2021, 11 of them were day one, day two picks and three more were fourth rounders. Looking at Chris Carson or Austin Eckler or James Robinson and using them as the argument that taking a running back, any running back on day one, day two is a bad idea seems pretty tenuous to me. Plus, Walker seems just like a ton of fun to watch, which I'm on board with. And that last part, not going to dispute. But let's talk about running backs and where you draft them and their success. So can you see from using DR what the issue with this stat is? It's carries. DR is primarily... A is, volume, volume stat. It's a volume stat. And yeah. as it turns out, teams tend to give a lot of carries to the players that they drafted in high rounds. Yes. That's extremely strongly correlated. So... If you look at the top 10, 20 players in carries last season, it turns out that 18 of them were drafted in the first three rounds or on day one or day two of the draft. The only exceptions being the aforementioned Austin Eakler and then Elijah Mitchell is a rookie for San Francisco. So with that as the backdrop, suddenly the fact that only 12 of the top 20 were drafted in the first three rounds in DR actually is pretty terrible relative to the number of carries that were being invested in these high draft picks. Mm. If you look at it in terms of DVOA, which is the per play measure from football outsiders, pretty much no matter how you look at it, there is no correlation in last year's stats, and I'm assuming this carries over, between where a player was drafted and their DVOA. The averages for all three days of the draft plus undrafted players are basically right at league average and day three and undrafted are infinitesimally better than day one and day two picks in that regard. Although it is true if you limit to players on rookie contracts, there is a tiny advantage for players drafted early. Now, the one thing I'd caution is just because of the fact that there's not a correlation within the sample doesn't mean that the sample is reflective of kind of the larger pool. Like one of the examples that statistics books will often use in this regard is if you look at players within the NBA, whatever measure of success you use, there's not really any correlation between that and height. And so based on that, you might say, <laughs> oh, if being high tall isn't important for being a basketball player. When obviously that's not true because the sample of players in the NBA is extremely tall as a group. 
So it's possible that there could just be some sort of threshold of goodness and, you know, some seventh round picks and undrafted players, you know, day three picks and undrafted players are able to get to that, but a lot more of the day one and day two picks are. But then when you look at all the other evidence in terms of running backs changing teams, when running backs get injured like Derrick Henry and they get replaced by Deontay Foreman and Dontrell Hilliard, it seems to strongly suggest that the success of a running back or their failure is much more a product of the circumstances around them than it is the player's individual talent, which is where you get to the idea that running backs don't matter. The other thing I think with Seahawks fans is I feel like they're very affected by that 2019 playoffs when Rashad Penny was had already suffered his ACL tear and Chris Carson suffered the season-ending injury in Week 16 against Arizona. And without them, the uh, Travis Homer, Marshawn Lynch-led offense had 17 carries for 19 yards in their win at Philadelphia and then 15 carries for 39 yards in a loss at Green Bay. But what everyone forgets about those games is that Dwayne Brown missed the Philadelphia game, and Mike Ayupati and Justin Britt missed both of those games. And it doesn't go on the record which offensive linemen were there blocking. It does which running backs get the carries. So again, that's a case where the offensive line is responsible for a lot of the outcome that all gets attributed back to the running back. And the scheme as well. <clears throat> yeah, and you're, you know, the quarterback is a big factor in this, as Ben, has talk, ben Baldwin talked about on the recap pod. It's sort of just like running backs are some of all their parts position, which it's the quarterback, it's the line, it's the scheme, it's everything, right? And that's what leads to running back success. I do think that there is a threshold of running back ability. For sure. It's not like, again, if you put us out there, that would be as effective as... You know, and it is is Kenneth Walker the third, third who apparently prefers to be referred Ken. to as Ken. Ken. Although I feel like you have to, it has to be either be Ken Walker or Kenneth Walker the third. Ken Walker the third for some reason doesn't work. Nah, no, he just Ken, doesn't. He's Ken Walker. Yeah, <clears throat> that's fine. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sort of like I, I'm not sure if that's true that there's a threshold of running back ability. I mean, there is some threshold of running back ability. Again, it's just, it may be a lower bar than we think it is. Then certainly NFL teams act like it is. I just had a thought of who of somebody who, and again, not that you could use any individual and just say like, or it was actually Saquon Barkley, somebody like that. It was on the, the other end, not, not the lower end. Like, I think you could take players who, objectively speaking around the league, there is this pillar of running back ability. Leonard Fournette, Saquon Barkley, players like that. Generational talents. And... They just haven't, and, and I mean, we've sort of documented that throwing the ball to the running back is basically the same as a, like, coaches want to use the idea of running back receptions as a thing that it's more valuable than a running back carry, and ultimately, if you're throwing the ball to somebody instead of handing it off to them, but it's a one yard past the line of scrimmage, half yard past the line of scrimmage, it's not that different than a carry. Uh, so, in fantasy football, phenomenal. <clears throat> but Lifelong fan. At the same time, I, I I don't know if I've seen the like, you know, if, if Ken Walker had been taken with the fifth pick in the draft, my expectation, my anticipation for his ability in the NFL or how he would play in the NFL is pretty much the same as it would be if he was drafted in the second round. Like, I think Kenneth, Ken Walker, Kenneth Walker the third is going to be fucking great on the Seahawks. Like, that's the thing is the reality is it's probably going to be Rashad Penny and Ken Walker and they're going to be awesome. I mean, I don't know. Again, it's no no Russell Wilson and potentially two rookie offensive tackles. 
or we don't know. Yes, I mean, that's that's the other reality is we just haven't seen it. It's been a really, really, really long time since Russell Wilson was the quarterback. Actually, we have seen it. It wasn't that great. Although they did run the ball quite well in the second half of that Pittsburgh game, I will say. Oh, well, we have the second half of that Pittsburgh game. Wasn't there like one drive, the yeah. first drive of the third quarter? Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know if I would call that the whole second half. Led by fifth round pick Alex Collins. Uh, yeah, I nah, I'm not, I'm not convinced there <clears throat> on it being a good pick. Yeah, I, I think your your refuting of it was pretty convincing. And I mean, there's there's both, you know, if you want to use practical real life scenarios, there's there's both those scenarios on the like undrafted free agent side, right? Your Raheem Mostert's players like that, right? Uh, <clears throat> and then also on the other end of Correct. like highly drafted players who haven't ended up being successful players in the NFL. And mm. it's not the same as other positions. It's not like you could go around and be like, well, it's the, you know, the, here's the 10 undrafted quarterbacks who ended up being pro bowlers. Exactly. I mean, there are some examples of those at other positions, but it's not nearly as frequent as it is at running back. So if there is differentiation between running backs in terms of ability coming into this league. NFL teams are extremely shitty at figuring out which is which. All right. Two graphs left. Lastly, two paragraphs left? Lastly, I'm very glad they didn't reach for a quarterback. You guys did mention this on the recap episode, but pretty clearly the entire NFL thought that this quarterback class sucked. And while the <clears> NFL as a whole gets a lot of things wrong, when the entire league looks at a quarterback class and wretches, they are almost never wrong. This quarterback class looks a lot like the 2013 one where only one quarterback went in the first round and only one, Geno Smith, went in the second round. The rare examples of guys being overlooked as mid-round picks, Russ and Dak, for example, come in drafts where multiple QBs go at the top of the draft. Obviously, the past isn't a perfect predictor of the future, but I actually think I like Drew Locke's chances of being serviceable over any single one of the guys drafted this year. I get that there's value of even an even average production at quarterback from a guy on a rookie deal, but I actually think the worst case scenario for the Seahawks is not one bad year, one year of bad UV play, but a half decade or more of average slash slightly below average play because you can't quite decide how you feel about Willis, Ritter, whomever. Which I think that last point is is one I definitely agree with and is quite reasonable. What was the stat they used for running backs where you're saying that it was a... <clears throat> what? When you were not looking at DR, were you looking at DVOA? Yeah. And what was the number? Uh, of the top 12, 20... Well, sorry, it was minimum 125 carries. Okay. Uh, the 10, 12 of the top 20. Were what? Oh, no, actually, I'm sorry. His was 12 of the top 20. I don't think I even used that stat, did I? But when you look at the top, the players with hundred at least 125 carries and the top 20 guys in terms of DVOA, it's 12 of 20 were drafted in the first three rounds in that stat. I mean, I, so. I, I don't remember where most of these backs were carried or drafted. Um, you look at it, Duke Johnson being number one. Um was that true even with the uh, 125 carry qualifier? Uh no, he only had 100 carries. Okay. Yeah, that's a, he was probably one of the outliers I was looking at and saying that's why I should set the bar slightly higher than 100 carries. I mean, but there are players who are up there like where is Khalil Herbert drafted? Uh Khalil Herbert. Uh, you just really the most important thing is you look at it and it's kind of just a hodgepodge of players. You know, and I think that's kind of the main thing, which, you know, Leonard Fournette was good in both DR and DVOA. 
And there's some players who are drafted in the second round. But then also you see Ezekiel Elliott, 23rd in DVOA, being one of the highest paid players on the team, who they used a fourth fourth pick in the draft on. Yep. And, and I think that, to me, is the bigger question. Or like, you know, Derrick Henry, who the entire offense is based around, who's not that good in either DR or DVOA. Right? Obvi- obviously, who's injured, but like... Well, he, he didn't return from the injury until the postseason, which isn't in here. Or you look at Josh Jacobs or somebody like that, who the Raiders used a first-round pick on, didn't pick up the option, you know? Yeah. There's Saquon Barkley, who's... I mean, if Saquon Barkley was not drafted where he was drafted, there's a good chance he'd be released, right? Or would be just like... A, he'd be fighting for his job. He wouldn't be part of the conversation. We wouldn't be talking about Saquon Barkley. Uh, I mean, it really gets pretty gnarly as you get farther down and just kind of like some of the reputations of these players. And and I think that's kind of the biggest issue is like DeAndre Swift was a second round pick, right? I believe so. Summarily terrible as in both DVOA and DR. Because the Lions were the other team besides the Seahawks to have used a pair of top, uh, top two round picks on running backs in the past five years, right? And that was Dalvin and... No, there was oh, the uh, Lions, K- you said. Kerryon Johnson Sorry. and Swift. And Kerryon Johnson's out of the league? Yeah, I. It just is, it's really hard when you look at the statistically, and then you look at success rate, and it's even more confusing. You know, like, it kind of is just a random hodgepodge of players. And I think that's why it's a little bit difficult to judge running back success. And I, I assume that that's kind of the case over a longer period of time. On the quarterbacks... Sure. I, I just don't know. Like, it, the reality is the league was not that interested in these quarterbacks. And it takes it takes a little bit more believing that the league is right that I'm willing to accept. Uh, and I think that there's more quarterback group think than necessarily, like, outside judgment of these players' abilities. I mean, it's weird because of the fact that, again, as we talked about, there was so much commentary about these players. Oh, they're going to go at the top of round two. Everyone's so excited to get them. And then it just didn't happen. It was it was a very unusual situation from that standpoint for all of them to happen with. But again, the, the biggest factor that's going to happen here is these quarterbacks are probably not going to be successful because they're probably not going to have the opportunities to be successful. That's, that's the thing about not getting drafted high, yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if we can exactly say that. Uh, but if you want to talk about eating your vegetables, this is going to be an eat your vegetable season because what those quarterbacks would have given us is something to be excited about. Right. If the Seahawks are two and ten and all of a sudden it's turning it over to a rookie quarterback, that's a hell of a lot more fun than it is they're two and ten and Geno Smith's coming in, you know, like I and Jacob Eason time. It it's gonna be if that is the case. It'll be a pretty brutal season. Just like not being part of it. We'll fucking just be watching NFL Red Zone. You know, I've got tickets. so I'll have to be there for nine games instead of eight. They couldn't have reversed it. The Seahawks had to trade Russell Wilson the one year that they have a fourth place schedule and have an extra home game. It's fine. Just perfect timing, guys. Perfect timing. You know, those offensive linemen and running backs weren't going to be there next year. Um but I, I think the hope piece of it, I, I do think I'm a little bit less convinced on the job security aspect of it. Yeah. 
Uh, obviously, lots can go wrong with this draft class, but for the first time in a long while with the Seahawks and Pete Carroll and John Schneider in particular, don't look unduly arrogant. They seem to recognize that the roster as a whole needs to be overhauled and upgraded to acknowledge that they're not way smarter than the other teams and draft analysts and pick potentially foundation players in important positions. Maybe that's a low bar to clear, but I think for the first time in a lot of years, we can say they cleared it. Totally agree. Yep. I mean, I think that was our takeaway in the recap pod. Uh, let's see here. I guess I did not have any other Seahawks news. There was the report that KJ Wright, even though he said he wants to be back in Seattle, does definitely does not sound like it's going to be a player. They really are quite convinced on Cody Barton. Just very, very convinced for on now. Cody Barton. Let's just give it a for now. But the talk is that KJ Wright could be back in a non-playing role as part of the coaching staff. Bring him back. KJ Wright is awesome. Obviously. Well, 100% endorse it. I, I will say, listen to a podcast where KJ Wright seemed to maybe not explicitly talk shit, but imply a lot of shit about both Pete Carroll and John Schneider. And the <laughs> fact that he's asking to come back, it really gives me a like, you didn't have, if I was KJ Wright's agent, I'd be like, maybe don't. <laughs> like, you don't, you're not gaining that much by doing this podcast. We appreciated the content. We thank oh, KJ Wright for the contact. Great content, content. On the Man to Man podcast. For people who host a podcast that maybe don't. Um, understand it understand why you needed to talk and say those words but like and he had to defend his friends and his former teammates but it was kind of like who knows i I, don't know that there's any hard feelings necessarily about that i i can tell you right now p carol and john schneider were not unaware of kj wright's feelings they probably were not not unaware of them before that podcast that's probably true right uh I, I think on the draft, again, they had a pretty good draft. Like, the Ken Walker pick doesn't need to transform the draft completely. And the team has... <laughs> it definitely did for our, our emergency pod after that. Well, like. that, <laughs> that was before they drafted a right tackle. Um, <laughs> that changed everything. Uh, I'm back, baby. It, there, there is so much more talent on the Seahawks after that draft than there was beforehand. Yeah. And... At, at important positions. Like, you can look through this. Every single position that they drafted, except for a running back, is a premium position. Like, they got it to a certain extent. The The unfortunate thing is that they're kind of devoid of talent at a lot of premium positions, and also the most premium position. But, it, look, this, this draft could be what makes up the core of the next great Seahawks team it could be players from this draft we could look back on this and say wow Kobe Bryant ended up being or Tariq Woolen ended up being a starting cornerback or a Pro Bowl caliber cornerback you know like I wouldn't be shocked if either of those things were true Boye Mafe could be awesome Charles Cross could be the anchoring left tackle of the team we could look back at this draft and say like we do with the Earl and the Okun draft and you look at it and you're like there's a couple of great players who led this team to a Super Bowl and there's talent beyond that. I mean, if that does happen, we'll have to look back and only say one thing, which is, wow, it's remarkable this happened while the Kraken still had one game remaining in their regular season. That's the number one sign that it's all going to be bad. <laughs> oh, that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks. And thanks for sending an 800-word email. We're always happy to <laughs> oh, receive and respond to email. 800-word emails and maybe agree with half and dispute half of it. Absolutely. That's the best ratio.